Imagine being born in the year 1900. In your lifespan, you would undergo the greatest technological advances more than any other period in human history. You would be born in a world where the way you got around was through horse and buggy. Uh, then you would die in a world if you lived by the time you were 69 and beyond that, by the time you were 69, you would have witnessed a landing on the moon. Yes, we landed on the moon. You would travel in jets across the globe. You would have automobiles that would travel to Columbia to St. Louis in less than two hours on the interstate. The world changed in so many significant ways. And yet, and yet, if you were born in 1900, when you're turning 14, all of a sudden we've entered the first world war in Europe. It's going to kill 20 million people. It will last until you're 18. And when you're 19, you're gonna be in the second year of a worldwide pandemic of the Spanish flu. That Spanish flu is gonna hit the youngest people the hardest, and it's going to kill two and a half times the number of people that died in World War I. By the time you're 29, the world economy is going to collapse into a Great Depression, and it will last until you are in your mid-30s. When you turn 39, all of a sudden, the whole world is going to be in the Second World War. That's going to last until you're 45 years old. And by the way, when you were zero years old, the day you were born in 1900, a new virus was becoming something of note in Europe that eventually became a worldwide pandemic called polio. Polio, in your, when you're in your 40s and 50s, is going to be at its peak, and it's going to kill or paralyze over 500,000 people a year. You will know lots of people who had to spend the rest of their lives paralyzed in some way. When you turn 50, the country entered the Korean War. When you turn 64, we entered the Vietnam War. The point is this. As awesome as those years were in technology during your lifespan, they were the bloodiest years in human history as well. They were the world's time of just, when you think about it, you never got a break. Within every 10 years, some major calamity was causing fear and anxiety. I, I don't know how you think of the world, I don't know what you think reality is, but I've entitled this sermon, Our Enchanted Reality. If you look up that word enchanted, it means two things. It means things that are almost the opposite. It means that it has something that's filled with delight and awe and wonder. Kind of like when you think about the Disney logo of the castle and all that kind of stuff. Just this magical feeling of wonder. But then another definition is being under a spell. Being bewitched in some way. I think the Bible is the only story that best explains that kind of reality in our world, a world that has incredible potentialities and human beings are created in such a way to discover and bring those potentialities out and there's just this awe to it, this amazing wonder to the things that can happen in this world and at the same time, it seems to be a world that can't catch a break, that kind of seems to be under this spell, this evil spell that we can't seem to get out of. When we get to Luke chapter four today, we're going through this, this sermon series on the gospel of Luke, and Keith talked about the first part of chapter four last week, and I'm gonna talk about the second part 
today. And what I want you to do today is I want you to wrestle with whether or not you think the reality described in Luke chapter four is the reality of this world that you believe in. I just want you to wrestle with that. Is that, is that how you see the world, the world we see in Luke chapter four? Let's get into it. Let's just look at, at verse 16. It says that Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So Jesus was accustomed to going to synagogue. He apparently is also was his custom to be the one who read the scriptures and taught because it says he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, that's an Old Testament book that was written like 700 years before Jesus' time. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So he found Isaiah, what we call Isaiah chapter 61. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's how you would teach in those days. That's a tradition I wish we had here. You would sit down and teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him because they're expecting him now to talk about the text. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a weird thing. Imagine me reading a part of the Bible that is talking about a coming one who's going to do this, and then I said to you, today I am he. I'm the one this scripture is talking about. But that's what Jesus does. And if you read the rest of Luke, you find out that, in fact, by the time you get to Luke 24, he says the entire, what we call the Old Testament, the entire Hebrew scriptures were all about him. That he's the one that the Bible's about. This Bible that we call the Old Testament and New Testament is a book of books. And it's an amazing thing because it has this, this diversity, variety of all kinds of styles it's written in all kinds of different styles. And it has this multiplicity of like 40 different authors who wrote over a period of like 1,500 years, over centuries. And so there's no way there can be a conspiracy. And yet, and yet by the time the whole thing is written, we discover that it's ultimately been this one epic story that couldn't have been people colluding with one another. It had to have been, it sort of has this, sign that it's been written by the hand of God in some way. And so we, we, we have this, Jesus says, it's always been about him from beginning to end. From beginning in Genesis 1, we, we read that the, the one true God that created this entire universe created an amazing world. And he created humanity in his godlike image to rule over this created world in partnership with God and in partnership with spiritual beings. And then in the third page of the Bible, in Genesis chapter three, we read that the good creation took a terrible turn when spiritual beings rebelled against God. Some of the spiritual beings rebelled against God, and as a result, Humanity rebelled against God as well, and we now live in this kind of Genesis 3 world of death 
thorns and death, instead of a world of glory, instead of a world of shalom and a world of abundance and a world of love, we live in a world of thorns and death. But as we get to the rest of the Bible, as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we find that God has promised to rescue this, this world under a spell, the rescue, this, rescue this world under curse, by creating a new family through a guy named Abraham, through which that God would write his scriptures, and that eventually through which God would be born into humanity itself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus took on the Genesis 3 curse. Jesus took on the thorns and the death on his body on the cross into death itself and was raised the first of a new humanity and a recreated world that he's eventually going to bring back with him when he returns. He's going to bring back Genesis 1, chapter 1, this world of wonder, this world of awe without evil, this world of abundance, this world of beauty and glory and love. But between the already of Jesus' death and resurrection and the not yet of his return, well, we still live in this drama this epic story that is both a world inhabited by God, spirit, God's spirit and spiritual beings, holy spiritual beings that, that are part of God's kingdom, so to speak, and at the same time seems to be under this spell, this kind of spell of evil that continues to envelop the world. And we live in a world now that, that, that is still part of this epic story where evil spiritual beings absolutely hate humanity and hate God's created world because they especially hate what God especially loves. And that's why the New Testament has verses like this where the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, he says, we know that the whole world lies in the power. That could easily be translated lies under the spell of the evil one. Now just think about that, that the whole world lies under a kind of spell. We don't know it, we can't see it, it's invisible, but lies under the power of this bigger story of spiritual beings rebelling against God. Another verse in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age, this spiritual being, the God of this age has blinded the minds. That's a really interesting phrase. It doesn't really seem to go together, kind of mixing metaphors. Blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean non-Christians, it just means unbelief, those unbelieving. That any kind of, in a sense, when we're living in unbelief, it says our minds are being blinded by the God of this age so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now just think about that for a minute. What that's saying is that there's a, you might understand the gospel, you might be able to explain it, but it's boring to you. It doesn't have this glory to it. It doesn't have this significance to it. It just sort of is a yawner. You're not really interested. You're interested in other things more, and you just sort of, it doesn't really do it for you. And what the New Testament is saying is that, yet that what you don't realize is that your, your, your mind is being blinded. That's, I don't know if you buy that. I don't know if this is the kind of world you think you live in. I don't know if you buy all this kind of language here about under a spell, minds being blinded. But if you, if you don't, you're not going to understand at all 
why Jesus chose that verse in Isaiah 61. You're not even gonna understand the verse. Well, let's read it again. Chapter four, verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord, Jesus is quoting this verse, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. What's interesting about this then is that Jesus gives examples of who these people are. He goes back to the Old Testament to give an example of the poor, the the blind, the prisoner, the oppressed. And one of the examples he uses is a guy named Naaman. Naaman was a pagan commander of a pagan army. He was, one of the, he was the commander of the army of Israel's enemy. And, and he was somebody that is, was incredibly rich, incredibly powerful. He was an oppressor. His job was to capture, kill, and enslave people. And yet Jesus uses him as an example of the poor. He was rich. I mean, poor, come on. He was one of the richest people in his, in his world. Jesus is using him as an example of poverty, of the poor. He was an oppressor. He conquered, he captured. Jesus is using him as an example of a prisoner, the oppressed. He was somebody that he got his will, whatever he commanded was done. Jesus is using him as an example of the blind. And then what Luke does is Luke then goes to a really dramatic account of Jesus actually doing, in a very dramatic story, dramatic kind of, extreme kind of way, what this passage is all about. So we pick that up as we look at verse 31. It says, then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. Like Apparently, Jesus did this on Sabbath all the time. He was kind of the Bible teacher. They were amazed at his teaching. So when you hear that word amazed, you're thinking Jesus is doing some extraordinary miracle that amazed everybody, but that's not, he hadn't done that yet. They were amazed just by the way he taught, how he taught, how his words came out, the feeling you had when he spoke them. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. There was a kind of difference that when you think about it, if God became human in the person of Jesus and he taught a Bible study, how do you think you would hear that Bible study? What do you think that would be like to hear God speak, to teach? Well, they were just amazed at his authority. So then it says, in the synagogue, while Jesus is doing all this, he's teaching with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. So this, uh, this word here, demon, I don't know what picture comes to your mind. <laughs> demon, and then you get a picture. My guess is whatever that picture is, it's not at all what the Bible's saying. When you think of somebody possessed by a demon, uh, you're thinking of a horror film and the story there, heads turning around, or whatever, that, whatever it is that comes to your mind, if you're thinking of demon possession like that horror film, you have left the biblical story completely and instead have a made-up image of it. Unfortunately, the New, New International Version hasn't helped us by this because this word possessed is not in the original language. The Greek language this is written in, that word possessed is not in this verse. It just says he had a spirit of an unclean demon. That's literally what it says in the language this is written in. 
But because we all kind of perceive that as demon possession, they add the word possessed, but that word possessed is nowhere in the Bible. It's not a biblical word. It's kind of a cultural word that, well, they kind of blew it. They're just trying to make it understandable, but somebody made a big mistake. No other English translation has that word, by the way, here. It just says they had a spirit. He had a spirit of an unclean demon. This is a guy in synagogue. His head's not turning around 360 degrees. He's not somebody that has nails all over his body, chasing everybody with eyes popping out. He's just a guy sitting in the synagogue. Jesus is teaching with authority, but there's something about the power and authority of Jesus' words that this presence, this demonic presence in this person's life, it just it gets so agitated, it blows its cover, and it cries out at Jesus. That's what it says. It says, in an impure spirit, he cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But then it goes on, and just, Jesus just does this. He, doesn't, he just says, be quiet. It almost sounds like a, I don't know, a teacher that's kind of frustrated with the kids. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were, well, here's that word again, amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Just with words, the words with power and authority. Now, remember Keith talked last week, the first part of this chapter, the first thing Jesus does after he's baptized, kind of starting his ministry, the very first thing he does is he goes into the wilderness to encounter the devil. And that's what Keith preached on last week. And now the very next story is Jesus encountering demonic spirit. The word demon will appear 23 times in the Gospel of Luke. I say all this because it's really strange to us. I mean, when you're hearing me talk this way, it sounds like somebody trying to start a cult. It's just weird. It's not our worldview. It's not how we see reality. But Luke is trying to tell us, no, this is, this is reality. It's invisible, but it is a reality more real than anything else in your life. And that's why Jesus came. That's the first thing Jesus did. The first thing Jesus did was to go encounter the devil. And then the next thing he does is he directly confronts and encounters evil spiritual beings. Now, I don't know, you know, most people in Western culture don't believe in demons. It just, it just seems like too much of a stretch. It's just not the world of atoms and the world of the universe. It doesn't seem... It doesn't seem scientific. It seems anti-everything that we think is true. Now, many people will believe in astrology. They will believe in tarot cards. They will believe that the universe has a fate for their lives. But somehow the idea of spiritual beings that are evil, eh, it's just too, too much of a logical stretch. They don't, they don't believe it. What that means is, and I want you to hear this, that means they don't believe in the world that Jesus clearly believed. I don't know, maybe you're smarter than Jesus. I'm serious, I don't mean this sarcastically. Maybe 2,000 years of history have made us smarter than Jesus. But if you believe that Jesus really was God who became human and taught truth, well, that means that whatever degree we disagree with the world Jesus is talking about is the degree that we're wrong. If, if, if Jesus is who he claimed to be. The world that Jesus taught 
the scripture that Jesus read, if you grasp it, you understand that we live in a world that has this invisible kind of poverty, this invisible kind of prison, an invisible kind of blindness, an invisible kind of oppression that's very real. And we might think we're rich like Naaman, but we're using as an example of how God sees us as poor and prisoners and the blind oppressed. We just don't know it. We think we, our problems are all these other things. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of, do you really buy into this? Is this something that you believe? Because if you do, if you do start to believe that well, maybe this does describe, maybe Jesus is describing, I don't, it's not something I would normally think, but maybe he is describing reality, then you start to understand your need for Jesus' words of power and authority to come into you, to come into your life. You start to realize that I really need Jesus to speak with his power and authority in me. Because I, I, the poverty is a poverty I wouldn't see. The blindness is a blindness I wouldn't know. I would be a prisoner and not know it under an oppression I don't normally catch. But I really need his words of power and authority. Now, I don't know your interest in the Bible. I don't know how you see the Bible, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Bible. I don't know what you think of it. But there's a guy that I follow on Twitter. He's actually the friend of a friend in this, I have in this church. And I've known kind of his story because he's a guy that has like 425,000 followers on Twitter. He's got a YouTube channel. He speaks at conferences. He's a young guy. He lived in New York. He was a secular Jew, atheist Jew, lived in New York. And then eventually, in fact, just this past March, actually 10 months exactly ago from now, he became a Christian, which was a really big deal for him, for everybody in his life, because he started to now talk about it among his 425,000 followers on Twitter. And he posted recently kind of a long tweet about how he sees the Bible now versus how he used to. This is David Perel, the guy I'm talking about. And I just took short parts of this tweet. I, just want, I shortened it so that we could talk about it here. It's longer than this. But he says this, he says, I went from thinking the Bible was the most boring book ever to seeing the magic in it. The stories felt outdated in a world of smartphones and fast internet. At the time, I was living in New York when a friend, that's the friend here at the crossing, when a friend introduced me to the work of Tim Keller. This was back when I thought all Christians had the intelligence of sidewalk pigeons. Don't laugh at that. I hope you don't resonate with that. <laughs> I looked at faith through a cultural lens. Instead of reading the Bible directly, I literally knew nothing about Jesus or Christianity. And I came to realize how little I knew about my own atheism too. Where did my moral compass come from? Do people have inherent value? My palate was beginning to change. Like fine wine, like a fine wine, the same flavors that were once repulsive to me started to appeal to my intellectual taste buds. I surrounded myself with wise Christians who were orthodox about scripture and eager to answer my hardest questions about faith. On the internet, I'd turn to the Bible Project to answer my big picture thematic questions. 
For years, I'd stiff-armed the Bible. Now, I was skipping to a 7 a.m. Bible study led by a devout believer. I became a believer on March 20th of this year, and the Bible is alive for me now like no book I've ever read. That's a big story, yeah, that's, yeah. And if you know him, uh, his life really has changed. He's very vocal about this in his YouTube channel when he interviews these authors and all that stuff. He talks about this very freely and they respect him for it because he's an incredibly respectful guy. I don't know if that story resonates with you at all. I don't know if it sparks something in you. Maybe you're kind of on this end where he says the Bible was the most boring book ever. Maybe you're kind of still there. But then maybe you're somebody who's kind of, you know, your taste buds are starting to change. You're starting to realize the Bible's a lot more intelligent than you thought. And there are some smart Christians that aren't sidewalk pigeons after all. And you're starting to realize that this book is probably maybe perhaps the most relevant book that you could possibly read. Maybe you're somewhere in that spectrum. Maybe you're still back way over here. But maybe you're enough where you want to go with us on a journey we're taking this, this semester. We're going through the Gospel of Luke together, and we're going through a workbook. And each time we preach on a sermon beforehand, people in our church have gone through that passage in their workbook. And you can pick one up in the foyer on your way out. There's a table out there that has these workbooks. And you can just kind of do this with us. You can just kind of read the passage, answer some questions, think about it, and you can kind of do this with us on a journey. And then you realize... You know, this story, this power, this authority, this story is no longer just a story that you read. It becomes a story that you actually enter with your life. I hope you do that with us. Amen.